This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good early evening, dear listeners. This is your Sunday Twilight Show with more. We are the 16th of July, and it is 5 p.m. We're going to talk about decision-making in education. Welcome! This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Decision-making, what is it exactly in the education context? Well, in general terms, decision-making is the process of making choices by identifying a decision to make, gathering information before making that decision, and afterwards assessing alternative resolutions. Now, in a general business context, it's it can be a little bit different. It is then considered as a set of steps taken by managers or CEOs in a company, enterprise or multinational in order to determine the best path for the business, um, taking into consideration initiatives, planning them, setting specific actions in motions in order to make a profit. In a school setting, It is slightly different. Decision-making refers to the choices made by the senior leadership team, which I will call SLT because the acronym is quite uh, generalized. And it's about making decision on budget, on staff, whether it's hiring staff or letting go of staff or on training staff, and then also on what we teach to the students and how we're going to teach it. So on the curriculum. So this is the common definitions in personal terms, business terms, and educational terms. Now, who makes the decision in a school? Well, usually your first answer would be, it's the head teacher and the people who work around him. So SLT again, senior leadership team. And that would be the first answer that most people would come out with. But if you look carefully, there's more people involved in decision-making. Now, the specificities of school decision-making depend on the country you're in. In the UK, the government has a big influence on decision-making in schools. And decision-making has an impact on many people that we might not always consider at first glance. Decision-making affects the lives of the people who work in school, That seems obvious. Teachers, caretakers, pastoral team, cleaners. But it also has an impact on the students, obviously, but also on their parents. I'll give you an example. If you happen to have a school where uniforms are compulsory, 
And if the price of uniform is really high, this has a direct impact on the family budget, on the household economy. But there's also decisions that can have an impact on the local community, the people who live around the school, for instance. Changing the starting time of the school day or the ending time of the school day might have a big impact on traffic around the primary school, for instance. It could also have an impact on the people who have businesses around the school. I'm thinking of little corner shops and how sometimes they get their business disrupted by having too many students coming at the same time every day. Decision-making has an effect on the staff, the students, the parents, but also people who live around the school. Now, we can't compare schools and, make, and, and use a comparison with businesses all the time, because let's not forget that schools are not normal businesses. Schools have different constraints. For example, we can't compare students and consumers. Students are not as free as a consumer because students are obviously a captive audience. If you're a student and there's only one school in your area, you can't just pack up and go if you're unhappy about the school. Very often, some schools are oversubscribed, which means that even if you wanted to change school, you might not get any place in your area. So students are a captive audience and they're very different from customers who could just at a click away change their network provider or their banks. Children also required legally to get an education and most of the time it is via attending a school. So they are not always involved in decision making, but the school's decision making has a direct impact on their well-being and their welfare. As I said, changing school is not easy. It's not as easy as changing an insurance provider. So the way decision making is done in a business where the law of offer and demand is prevalent is completely different in a school. Schools usually operate with a vertical downward system. The school is led by a senior leadership team and the people underneath, classroom teachers, pastoral team, teaching assistants, children and caretakers do not have much say in decision-making. The most powerful stakeholders in schools in the UK are often now CEOs of the academy or the trust who have, who have taken over schools since the years 2000s. There is the SLT, senior leadership teams, and the governors that a lot of people sometimes forget about. However, even though we think that these people have all the power, they are also following rules. And these rules are made by the government via its two arms, the Department for Education and its sanctioning arm, Ofsted. So just to remind you, if you are wondering what does stakeholder mean in a school, let's go back to the meaning of stakeholder. A stakeholder is a person who has influence on an institution, but also works for an institution. So it can be someone who is part of the staff, but it can also be a student. It can be a governor. It can be the trust 
or the CEO, anyone who is involved around the school and the local community and the parents. So in a business or school, anyone who is involved in the functioning of that school. As I said, the two arms of the government are Ofsted and DFE. So let's go back behind the acronyms to their meaning. Ofsted is the Office for Standards in Education, Children's Services and Skills, whereas the Department for Education is the DFE. We used to have a lot of local authorities' involvement in decision-making, but this has stopped since the becoming of the academies. So local authorities don't have much of a say anymore, except in their admission criteria, because these are um, the local authorities are the ones who deal with the catchment area and the admissions. The stakeholders in a school are multiple and varied and sometimes can have conflicting interests. As I said, any parent and any student is a stakeholder, but we also have teachers. We have school principals, school board members, local communities, local clubs, funding bodies, politicians, citizens, as I also pinpointed out, local businesses in the local area, and let's not forget, people provide resources for teaching and learning, so content writers, website designers. There are hundreds of people concerned and directly affected by what goes on in schools. I could also say traffic wardens, the police, social services, and anyone who drives past a school on a daily basis. Uh, occurrence. So the types of decision-making in the UK are, as I said, vertical and downward. Decision comes from the top and is slowly trickled towards the bottom. If we look at a graph, it would be represented as a pyramid because there's less people at the top and more at the base. So at the top, we would have the executive information systems, people who make strategic decisions. They think, hopefully, in the long-term plans, and they just make a decision, and then they ask people below them, managers, SLT, to put this into practice via tactical decisions. And then at the bottom of the pyramid, the biggest base, it's the classroom teachers, the students, the parents, the caretakers, all these people who make the strategic and tactical decisions happen for real. So they are the operational actors in the pyramidal graph. Now, we can divide decisions as two. We would have minor decisions and major decisions. So for instance, opening a sixth form college in a secondary school would be a major decision because it implies buying land or leasing land, having enough money to fund building a new building, hiring new staff, choosing what subjects would be done, etc., etc. So that would be a major decision decided by top management people. Now, minor decisions, it could be whether you need a desk or not in your office, or whether you need to buy some stationery or not. It's quite clear to represent the difference between major and minor decision. Now, 
We also sometimes forget that in one school, we might have different types of decision making. The first type we can look at is the individual versus group decisions. So when the decision is taken by one person, it is obviously seen as an individual decision. However, it is very rare that only one person will make a decision. And it is highly recommended that anyone in a school who has a position of power should ask for feedback or advice before making use of individual decisions. Now, group decisions are taken, taken by a group of individuals, usually forming a committee or part of a meeting. Whether their decision is minor or major depends, but the main aim in taking group decision is to involve everybody and get to the best decision making possible. So if we look at the teacher's role in a school, how often do teachers make decisions? Well, in my personal experience, and I've only been working in state schools for the last three years, decision making is not very prominent in a teacher's role. The only times we make decisions are when it's about personal matters, whether we change school or whether we are retiring, for instance. We are sometimes asked to make strategic um, decisions, but that's very rarely, and it would be about our area of expertise. For instance, in the curriculum, do we start by teaching tenses or do we start by teaching another grammar point? but that would be minor rather than a major decision. We are sometimes asked to do program decisions when we decide something that has to be done in a routinely way. We are also sometimes responsible for making routine decisions. What is the best thing to do every day with our students? We can be asked to make operating decisions and off-the-cuff decisions. But that's not that many impactful decisions that classroom teachers are able to do. Most types of decisions are made by people who do not necessarily teach children. Tactical decisions are one of the decisions that happen in schools. Tactical decision is usually a manager who decides to establish certain rules, policies and procedures that will be applied by everybody and they will be repetitive in nature and they will ensure that we have a good functioning of the school. For instance, having um, a behavior policy could be a tactical decision. Programmed and non-programmed decisions were devised by Professor Herbert Simon, who was um, active in, um, he's an American economist and he was active in psychology as well as economy. Um, his date of birth was 1916 and he died in 2001. So Professor Herbert Simon used terminology that is very much inspired by computing, programmed and non-programmed. What he meant by that is that business decisions can be of two types. Those that are routinely done and very repetitive are program decisions. And this is in order to make sure that the same procedures are applied for the same situations. And non-programmed ones 
are not repetitive in nature. There is also other types of decision-making. There is the basic versus routine. Professor Katona has devised these two opposite classifications. Basic decision is the one that requires a lot of thinking, a lot of deliberation, and they are very important. For instance, it could be whether we have a mixed school or a non-mixed school, having a boys' school only or a mixed school, for instance. And this decision requires the formulation of new norms, and they have to be well thought through. These are the, the basic decisions, and they really have a big impact on the whole school. Now, the routine decisions are, again, repetitive, and they are usually not difficult to come out with. They are obviously about having the best functioning and the best execution for the school. Now, if you look at the people at the top, so usually the head teacher and the senior leadership team, they can make two types of decisions. They can make personal executive decision or organizational executive decision. So the personal decision is whether a head teacher wants to take his retirement or wants to stay in the school. And it's based on his or her own personal view. And it's done in his personal capacity. He takes a decision as an individual and he doesn't have to explain why he takes that decision. Now, an organizational decision is very different. It's when the executive power, so here the head teacher, is using his official capacity and he can make a decision that will be delegated to others, whereas a personal decision cannot be delegated to others. The ones that teachers do are not the type of um, decisions. The ones that teachers do are off on the spur of the moment. They are called off the cuff decisions or in a quite violent way, shooting from the hip type of decisions. These are the decisions you need to make on the spot when you're facing a new situation. So usually it might be something that requires safeguarding, uh, could be an emergency one, or it could also be something about conflict resolution. For instance, there's a fight in the corridor. Do I run towards the fight and separate the children or not? And as you've seen in the news, sometimes this on the spur of the moment decision can have drastic impact. Uh, it has been reported in the news that a teacher was um, sanctioned because they actually separated two children were having a fight. So these um, on the spot decisions can have a very dramatic impact. Now, there is also the planned decisions. So the planned decisions are the ones that have general objectives for the organization. And they are usually devised after a rigorous scientific process. We analyze data, we make decisions based on pragmatic evidence, and we want good results out of these planned decisions. Now, what is the difference between policy decision-making and operating decision-making? Well, policy decision-making is, as you will gather by the term, something that is done by the people at the top. 
policy decisions are taken at a high level. And I would also say that many times it goes above the head teacher said. It could be a trust decision, it could be a local authority decision, or it could be a governmental decision. These are usually done, hopefully, after lengthy deliberations, and they are having a big impact on schools in general. Whereas operating decisions, they are taken at a lower level by uh, maybe a head of department or by a teacher sometimes, and they are about making the best decision in order to keep the school functioning in its best operating way. Operating decisions are those which are taken by lower management for the purpose of making a policy decision work. So the policy decisions will have an impact on the operating one. And the operating one is aiming at establishing the policy decision. Now, obviously, if you look at corporations and big business, you will realize that there's three major types of corporation decision-making. There's the policy one, administrative decisions and executive decisions. So these ones are um, not the ones that classroom teachers can achieve. They are usually the privilege of SLT and sometimes of other organizations that were previously mentioned, such as Ofsted, the Department for Education, local authorities, and trusts. Let's focus on strategic decision because strategy is very important in schools. We need to make the best decisions and having a strategy seems like the best way to get to these best decisions. So strategic decisions are important because they affect objectives and they depend on goals. So usually a lot of people spend a lot of time talking about strategic decisions. Sometimes there is even a strategy officer who is hired and whose sole job is to devise very accurate strategies that depend on data collecting and also follow the trust or the school's goals, ultimate goals. These decisions involve sometimes a lot of money and big investments and funds. So the business manager will always be involved in these strategic decisions. They are non-repetitive because they are sometimes exceptional in their nature, and they hopefully de derive from a careful analysis and, I hope, an evaluation of many other options and other alternatives so, so, so that we have at least decided on the best course of action comparatively. Now that we have talked about the types of strategic decisions made in a school, let's just remember which ones are the privy of SLT or the top of the pyramid of decision making. So strategic decision making is from the top of the pyramid. Non-programmed as well. Organizational whether it's personal or organizational, as long as it's ex executive decision-making, it will be taken by the leadership. Policy, administrative and executive can be done by the head teacher, but they could also come from other actors who are higher in the pyramid scheme. It could be Ofsted or governors or trust CEOs. Policy is always about people who are at the top, 
but operating can be low or medium managers, such as head of departments. Now, everything that is about routine, off the cuff, um, operating and programmed, everything that's repetitive, everything that is ensuring that the targets are um, fulfilled is usually the privy of the classroom teacher. So before we dive into the nitty gritty aspects of how we make a decision and hopefully the best decision, we're going to have a little of a breather and listen to the news. I'll be straight after the news. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports on the lack of suitable childcare for children with special educational needs and disabilities, particularly over school holidays. The report features data from the charity Quorum, which shows that only 1 in 20 councils in England say there is enough childcare for SEND children during school holidays. In some areas, including London and Yorkshire, there were no councils with sufficient childcare available. Parents of children with SENS say that in some cases, they are unable to work because of the lack of suitable childcare in holiday periods. Others express concern at the significant change in routines brought about by having to spend the whole summer at home with parents. Quorum conducted similar surveys in Scotland, where no councils reported having enough childcare for children with SEND. Similarly, in Wales, there was a lack of adequate provision with only 5% of councils saying they had enough suitable places. In a different survey by Contact and the Disabled Children's Partnership, covering 1,800 parents of children with SEND, 9 out of 10 said they were not able to find a suitable holiday club or activity. While there is a legal duty in England for local authorities to make sure there is sufficient childcare available for parents who want to work, up to 14 years and extended to 18 years for parents of disabled children, it does not have to be paid for by the local authority. This means even where childcare can be found, the costs can be prohibitive. A spokesperson for the Department of Education said the government is investing £300 million to test new approaches to short respite breaks, and that holiday activities and its food programme help children from low-income families over the holidays.
The Guardian has focused on plans to limit the number of students taking low value degrees in England, a measure the paper says is most likely to hit working class, black, Asian and minority ethnic applicants. Courses that do not have a high proportion of graduates getting a professional job, going on to postgraduate study or starting a business will be capped. Vice chancellors say the measure could act as a red flag putting off students who may feel the course will damage their life chances. The numbers cap is unlikely to affect the bulk of courses offered by Oxbridge or Russell Group universities. The government appears to have moved away from applying minimum entry requirements for school leavers, which had been floated as a way to control student numbers. The changes are unlikely to help improve the financial position of English universities either. They have seen tuition fees frozen at £9,250 per student since 2017. Inflation has eroded the value of fees and many institutions say they now lose money for every UK student. Schools Week reported on the release of SATS results, focusing on the repeat problem faced by many head teachers, actually getting access to them. This was despite government promises that the previous issues had been ironed out. Multiple error messages appeared and when many tried to access the primary assessment gateway, they got messages which included one saying that the system was currently unavailable due to planned maintenance. Last year, schools faced issues with late results, lost scripts and an unanswered helpline. But a lessons learned review in April said robust tests had made sure similar events would not happen this year. Schools Week has previously reported on technical issues which delayed marking by a week and complaints that pay rates had gone down again. Capita has a £107 million contract to deliver the assessments in a seven-year deal which began last year. Meanwhile, other media outlets focused on the attainment results themselves, which show that it remains significantly lower than before COVID and that they've changed little since last year. The proportion of tenant... 11-year-olds meeting the government's expected standards in reading, writing and maths combined remained at 59%, the same as in 2022, down from 65% in 2019. Results in reading were down to 73% from 75% in 2022, but this year's paper triggered mass complaints from parents and teachers, saying it had left some pupils in tears. This year's cohort had the majority of Year 3 and Year 4 disrupted by the pandemic. Finally, Sky News broadcast a wide-ranging interview with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. One of the topics covered was absent pupils, with Ms Keegan saying that absence levels were now a crisis. She went on to say that she would pick them up myself when asked the best way to tackle the issue. When questioned as to whether collecting pupils was a good use of school leaders' time, she said, they do have a duty. We all have to play our part. Sometimes you have to go to the home. However, a spokesperson for Number 10 did not repeat Ms Keegan's comments, but did state, different schools will take different approaches. Ms Keegan's comments have been met with derision from many teachers who took to social media to point out that it was just one more thing teachers and school leaders were being asked to do. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. We are back after the news, dear listeners. So we were talking about decision making. Now, what is decision making in normal life, not just in education? Well, just for fun, let's go through what you do most evenings. You're going to decide what you're going to make for dinner. So you start pretty slow. You open the fridge. You look at what's in there. Um, do you need to buy ingredients or can you make things out of scratch? Now, you also have to think about the context. Do you have guests coming or are you on your own? Do you have children, growing children to feed? Then you assess, is there enough food in the fridge for guests? How much energy do you have to cook from scratch if you have all the ingredients you you need? Then you might ask for help. If there's not in enough ingredients, you might think I can send my partner to the off-license so that they can buy some ingredients. Or if you have enough funds on your bank account, you can decide to get a takeaway. If you're on your own, you might just want to look at the cupboard, get a tin of soup, and that will do. And then after having your dinner, you're gonna reflect. Was it healthy? Was it filling enough? Do you feel a bit dirty or do you feel a bit greasy or do you feel like you wasted money because you had a takeaway? All this is you reflecting on your decision making. So that was a little bit of fun, but this is what we do day in, day out. We do it in our personal lives and we do it at work. Decision making depends on strategy. The problem is when you work in education, even if you don't do these executive strategic strategic decision making, if even if you don't devise policies, if you even if you only do basic repetitive program decision making, you will have to do too many a day. According to Dr. McLean, who is a psychiatrist working for the American Medical Association, she says that the idea that after making many decisions, our ability to make more and more decisions over the course of a day becomes worse can be summarized by a term, decision-making fatigue. 
And most people who work in education have to do that so often. The more decisions you have to make, Dr. McLean says, the more fatigue you develop and the more difficult it can become. So as a joke, I chose the decision-making involved in making dinner because this is the decision I don't want to have to make after a whole day of teaching. And usually I would get quite mad if I'm asked to make that decision in particular. Um, Lisa McLean, as I said, who is a psychiatrist, really wants people to understand that it is very important to take this decision fatigue into account when you try to think about mindfulness and your well-being. So she says that making too many decisions a day can create stress and that the average adult makes up to 35,000 decisions per day. 35,000. That sounds extremely exaggerated a number, but if you think about the minor and major decisions. You're not making major decisions every day, unless you are working as a surgeon, I guess. But if you're making minor decisions, it could just be, what suit am I gonna wear today? What shoes am I gonna wear today? Do I have a tea or coffee for breakfast? These are minor decisions, but they still add up at the end of the day. So. There's a lot of different things in terms of what we eat, what we wear, what we do every day, even if we are not at work. But these decisions take time and energy and we can be depleted if you do it too often. So people who suffer from decision-making fatigue are, have symptoms of physical and mental fatigue. And the symptoms can be quite debilitating. The doctor, Lisa McLean insists on the fact that this phenomenon is cumulative. So the more decisions you make, the more fatigued you will be. And this may, will make you feel worse and more drained as the day progresses. And if you don't have days off where you can maybe stay in your pyjamas all day and not have to think about what to wear, um, you might get into burnout which is happening more and more in the education sector and which might, might ex explain why there's so many people who are leaving the profession. So when we make too many decisions, our brain will be tempted to make shortcuts. So we won't spend as much time analyzing the context and different options. And we might make a very short decision that might not be a good decision. And also, when people are too fatigued to make decisions, they have four main symptoms described by Dr. McLean. Procrastination, impulsivity, avoidance, and indecision. I have experienced it, I have experienced it myself. Sometimes um, there's people who ask me, oh, do you want to do this or that? And I look at them and I, I don't know, I can't make up a decision because I'm too tired. So I think we've all been there. Uh, Dr. McLean says, sometimes people go as far as putting off the decision-making or they just make a rash decision. And remember, a rash decision in education is not only about ordering glue, glue sticks. It might be, oh, I'll fill out this safeguarding paper later or I'll do it after break 
and then you forget it. And if you forget it, it might be someone's life at stake because some of the safeguarding issues we have as teachers have lifelong consequences for the students or the members of staff that are concerned. So it is really important that we do not have too many members of staff who are suffering from decision-making fatigue. Dr. McLean says the psychological effects of decision fatigue can vary, potentially leading to difficulty making the right decisions, but also in your personal life by impulse buying or other avoidance behaviors. She says, you might notice that you get angrier with colleagues and families. You splurge on clothes or you impulsively buy more junk food. So there's quite serious consequences on health if we eat too much junk food and also on conflict avoidance. Because if we get angry at colleagues in our, in our own families, this can have a serious detrimental effect on our personal and social lives. You're going to tell me, I have experienced decision-making fatigue. And what can I do about it? Well, there's simple solutions that the Dr. McLean advises us to follow. So first, Dr. McLean says we should automate our decisions, which means instead of having to think every day, what am I going to eat for breakfast? You just eat the same. So for people like exotic breakfast and a lot of variety that might seem like very very detrimental but if you think about it if you only have a choice between cereals and bread every morning you will just happily get used to it and it will save you some time if you reach for the cereal box reducing choice and options if you want some variety as i said have bread or cereals also planning ahead, which means instead of thinking in the morning when you, your brain is still a bit sleepy, just prepare your clothes the day before. Check the weather forecast first, because we, you know, when we live in the United Kingdom, you never know what weather is, it's going to be like. But if you plan ahead, prepare your clothing the day before, and then you have minimum choices to make for your breakfast, you start the day with less decision-making than someone wakes up at 7, has to leave the house at 7.30, and has to decide on an outfit and a breakfast. This is for the personal. Now, what are the solutions to combat decision-making fatigue at work? Well, delegate. And you might be tempted to say, I'm a primary school teacher, there's no one to delegate to. I don't have a TA. Well, delegate to the students. You might just work on creating strict routines, but delegate on handing out papers, delegate on handing out pens. Try and make the students work for you. As far as making sure you do not make rash decisions or forget or procrastinate when it's important decisions to make, making lists can help. Systemize your lessons. What does it mean? It means that you have a template for a lesson and you always use the same template. There's no surprises. It's always the same way. Again, it might be a bit boring to always do the same thing, but remember, many neurodivergent students like a strict routine. So systemize your lessons. You just have to change the activity, but you know you will always do a listening activity 
or writing activity at such time. And as a general rule, if you want to reduce decision-making fatigue, stick to a routine. Always use, use the same cup in the staff room, always have the same drink. Don't waste time thinking, just have a systemized daily routine. So these are the solutions to avoid decision-making fatigue for teachers. Now, if we look at decision-making for the whole school, as I said, it is often a pyramidal structure with vertical downward decision-making. But decisions are based on beliefs, value systems, and previous experiences. So every head teacher has a different set of beliefs and values and previous experiences. So leaders have a lot of influence on their school, even though they have to follow the rules from a CEO trust or from the Department of Education or Ofsted. So it is very important that your leader, your head teacher knows themselves very well, knows what path they're interested in, knows how to get help when they're needed, and knows about decision-making models. We need to have people in positions of power who are very self-aware and very empathetic, because the first decision is to decide what level of involvement is the most effective in a school. Leaders have four different ways of getting involved in decision-making. When I say leaders, I don't just mean head teachers. It can be a head of department, it can be a head of pastoral, or head of safeguarding, or a vice principal. So a leader has to decide if they want to make the decisions alone. A leader has to decide if they want to seek participation and input from others. A leader has to decide if they want to collaborate. And a leader has to decide if they want others to make decisions too. So these approaches are in leadership terms called autocratic, participative, collaborative, and laissez-faire, which I love because it's a French term. So how do you make good decisions in a school? Well, usually we advise school leaders to use participative and collaborative ways. But sometimes laissez-faire might also work. If you've done your job well as a leader, you've hired excellent staff, you know they do their work very well, and you can also trust them to make good decisions. But for any decision that has an impact on students, it is important to start with an analysis of the context. How is your school? What is going well and what is not going well? Once you've looked at what is going well, you can give yourself a pat on the back. But that's not enough. Then you need to be empathetic and self-aware enough to identify what doesn't work well. And there's always something that doesn't work well in any institution. And it's a challenge. So ident identifying an issue is the first part of a decision-making process. If everything went well, we wouldn't have to make decisions, really. So once you have identified a, an issue or a problem or an inconsistency, we need to think about different options to solve that issue 
or problem or inconsistency. So this is called the de devising a solution through de decision-making. And this is one of the steps of decision-making. Some corporate models offer seven steps to effective decision-making. And it starts with identifying the decision, gathering information, then identifying alternatives, weighing evidence or analyzing data, choosing amongst the alternatives, taking action, and then once the action is taken, evaluating if the action worked. So these seven steps are super important and we should not sidestep one step, if you um, excuse my pun. So from one to seven, it's really important to keep that model. And I would advise any leader or anyone in a position of making decisions in a school to have that seven step to effective decision making printed somewhere near their desk. Because too often we might just forget to identify alternatives or we might forget to weighing the evidence and research-based decision-making is super important. If it has been proven time and time and time again that some methods don't work, why do we keep insisting on keeping them? It's something to think about. And before we go into decision-making, we also need to think about how we hire staff. Talent management is really important and a good leader is going to be someone who hires good people. Not people who are going to say yes to him all the time or her, but people who are going to bring them exactly what they need, not what they want or what they think they need. So making sure as a leader, you have people who are core employee, who have a high impact, people who are trusted, people who are effective, and making sure if you have underperforming staff that you find out why and that you train yourself adequately. So what are the major constraints in decision-making? Well, we did mention it before. The problem head teachers face, and the problem is having a massive impact on head teacher retention as well, is that there are too many variables that have an impact on schools at the moment. And the head teacher can barely keep all these variables in mind while making a decision because there's so many stakeholders, parents, students, local authority, uh, Department for Education, Ofsted, local businesses, governors, staff, that's eight different groups of people with eight different views, with eight different agendas, and with eight different expectations. And sometimes students' expectations go against parents' expectations and teachers' expectations. So how can we weigh evidence enough in such a difficult setting? Well, I would say the major constraint is also time. Having to make an urgent decision is really having an impact on head teachers because sometimes even though they would like to have time to consult the data or to get other people's input there isn't a possibility because time is pressing so 
you can't have participative and collaborative decision making if there's no time. So it is really important for a leader to have a system in place to schedule more time in order to make decisions in an optimum way. So maybe in a timetable, they should have a 30 minutes where nothing is on, just in case they have to make an urgent decision. And trust me, even if your timetable says you have a free period, you will find something to fill it in. Now, the other constraint that SLT or leaders have to face when making a decision in schools is staff interest in the decision. There is such a thing as a zone of indifference. And it was penned by Barnard um, in 1938, so it's not nothing new. And he said that sometimes staff can be apathetic towards a decision made by the leader, either because it doesn't really concern them or because they're quite reluctant to, to get involved. So at high level of interest, we need to make sure we nurture collaboration and participation to avoid having too many zones of indifference. Staff expertise is also a big major constraint in decision making for leaders. If you want to trial a very important policy, you have a strategy and you're trying to promote it to your staff. If your staff doesn't have the knowledge required or the expertise, you're not going to be able to get the execution part of your decision-making process. So it is really important that a leader makes sure his staff is always trained or able to train if needed. Another constraint in decision-making is the importance or need for a high-quality decision, which means if a decision is very important, and it's a major decision, it will have very big consequences. So in that sort of setting, it is really important that we have the best models available. If the decision is relatively unimportant, you don't need to follow these seven steps of decision-making. You can have an on-the-spot decision if it's not important. So the more important the decision is, the more time, the more input, the more expertise is going to be needed. And the last constraint for leaders who make decisions is a degree of need for buy-in or support for the decision. So it means that sometimes you will need to get someone outside of school to help with a policy or any project. So it can be like ordering a, a new building to be built. You can't do that with the staff you have at hand. So the business manager will have to hire construction workers, etc. So this is when you need extra external help. So this was a brief description of all the steps for decision making and all the constraints that are inherent to decision making. Now I would like to talk to you about my own experience of decision-making in state education. As I said earlier, I do not have years of education experience behind me in the state school sector because I've only been in state schools for three years, but I was teaching for 10 years prior. So out of 13 years of teaching experience, I can only say that 
decision-making for teachers is really restricted in, in the way teaching happens in the United Kingdom. Whether you work in private or state schools, state schools um, classroom teachers are seen as just a component of the structure, but not a very important part. One cog, but not an important part of the machine and certainly not the engine of the machine. So this position, this inferior position is due to a cultural choice. I, I, I'm aware that if you are a teacher in Finland or in Holland, your importance will be different and your decision making will have more impact on the school you work out and on the students as well. So my main experience is that decision making is really hard because we do not have a lot of opportunities to practice it. Are we making a school where the top talent is having a lot of impact on the school? In my experience, no, not at all. In my experience, a lot of people who end up being in positions of power and decision-making in schools are people who do not have leadership skills in particular, but people who disliked spending too much time teaching in the classroom. And the only way they could reduce their teaching hours was to become a mid-level manager or a member of SLT. So this is not um, a sign that they are really trained to be good leaders in that way. Top talent is um, often taken out of teaching. The extremely good teachers end up sometimes also becoming head teachers or becoming consultants. So they are not always in the schools having an influence on the students around them. So this creates a vacuum where some people end up with SLT positions, but they are not always the best people to create decision making that is optimal. So um, a discussion with head teachers also suggests that they are literally torn between too many um, activities they have to face. There is too much on the judicial and too much on the legal aspect. Head teachers have to have a legal knowledge that is increasing year on year because of litigation. And this is a cultural thing that is coming from America. So they spend a lot of time dealing with litigation with parents instead of thinking about improving their school. Now, it is a requirement in law since 2013 with the employment law to encourage flexible, effective and fair work practices in jobs and corporations in the UK. However, this law hasn't really been followed through in schools. There is very few flexibility in teaching and in school organization. And this has a massive impact on decision making, because if you are in inflexible hours, working hours, in inflexible position where you are imposed a teaching way, you are imposed a way of doing, you are imposed resources, then your decision making power shrinks. So you have even less input on your schools. So before I go deeper and give you an example of my decision making in practice, we're going to listen to the news. 
one more time. Thank you, dear listeners, and I'll see you straight after the news. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson edXL's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson edXL MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio news the BBC reports on the lack of suitable childcare for children with special educational needs and disabilities particularly over school holidays the report features data from the charity Corum which shows that only one in 20 councils in England say there is enough childcare for send children during school holidays in some areas, including London and Yorkshire, there are no councils with sufficient childcare available. Parents of children with SENS say that in some cases, they are unable to work because of the lack of suitable childcare in holiday periods. Others express concern at the significant change in routines brought about by having to spend the whole summer at home with parents. Coram conducted similar surveys in Scotland where no councils reported having enough childcare for children with SEND. Similarly, in Wales, there was a lack of adequate provision, with only 5% of councils saying they had enough suitable places. In a different survey by Contact and the Disabled Children's Partnership, covering 1,800 parents of children with SEND, 9 out of 10 said they were not able to find a suitable holiday club or activity. While there is a legal duty in England for local authorities to make sure there is sufficient childcare available for parents who want to work, up to 14 years and extended to 18 years for parents of disabled children, it does not have to be paid for by the local authority. This means even where childcare can be found, the costs can be prohibitive. A spokesperson for the Department of Education said the government is investing £300 million to test new approaches to short respite breaks, and that holiday activities and its food programme help children from low-income families over the holidays. The Guardian has focused on plans to limit the number of students taking low-value degrees in England, a measure the paper says is most likely to hit working-class, black, Asian and minority ethnic applicants. Courses that do not have a high proportion of graduates getting a professional job, going on to postgraduate study, or starting a business will be capped. Vice-Chancellors say the measure could act as a red flag, putting off students who may feel the course will damage their life chances. 
the numbers cap is unlikely to affect the bulk of courses offered by Oxbridge or Russell Group universities. The government appears to have moved away from applying minimum entry requirements for school leavers, which had been floated as a way to control student numbers. The changes are unlikely to help improve the financial position of English universities either. They have seen tuition fees frozen at £9,250 per student since 2017. Inflation has eroded the value of fees and many institutions say they now lose money for every UK student. Schools Week reported on the release of SATS results, focusing on the repeat problem faced by many head teachers, actually getting access to them. This was despite government promises that the previous issues had been ironed out. Multiple error messages appeared and when many tried to access the primary assessment gateway, they got messages which included one saying that the system was currently unavailable due to planned maintenance. Last year, schools faced issues with late results, lost scripts and an unanswered helpline. But a lessons learned review in April said robust tests had made sure similar events would not happen this year. Schools Week has previously reported on technical issues which delayed marking by a week and complaints that pay rates had gone down again. Capita has a £107 million contract to deliver the assessments in a seven-year deal which began last year. Meanwhile, other media outlets focused on the attainment results themselves, which show that it remains significantly lower than before COVID and that they've changed little since last year. The proportion of 10 and 11-year-olds meeting the government's expected standards in reading, writing and maths combined remained at 59%, the same as in 2022, down from 65% in 2019. Results in reading were down to 73% from 75% in 2022, but this year's paper triggered mass complaints from parents and teachers, saying it had left some pupils in tears. This year's cohort had the majority of Year 3 and Year 4 disrupted by the pandemic. Finally, Sky News broadcast a wide-ranging interview with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. One of the topics covered was absent pupils, with Ms Keegan saying that absence levels were now a crisis. She went on to say that she would pick them up myself when asked the best way to tackle the issue. When questioned as to whether collecting pupils was a good use of school leaders' time, she said, they do have a duty. We all have to play our part. Sometimes you have to go to the home. However, a spokesperson for Number 10 did not repeat Ms Keegan's comments, but did state, different schools will take different approaches. Ms Keegan's comments have been met with derision from many teachers who took to social media to point out that it was just one more thing teachers and school leaders were being asked to do. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. 
Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you for listening to the news, dear listeners. So we were talking about decision making in schools today. Now I'm going to give you a brief um, glimpse at decision making in my practice. As I said, it is very limited decision making as a classroom teacher because we do not have much input on the running of a school. But I'm trying to practice my decision making skills. So I went out around the school and had a look and a thought about what goes on that works well and what doesn't work so well. So this is the first step and it's uh, looking at the context. I identified a problem afterwards after looking at the context and this problem is literacy we have a lot of year seven who come to the school and their literacy levels is below the national average and sometimes their reading age is for year three or year four child so we do have um at the beginning when the children come and join us a problem with literacy skills now I looked at writing because I noticed in history and geography that my students have a good factual knowledge. They can memorize pretty much. They are enthusiastic and motivated. But when they have to write down themselves, they become apathetic and they don't do anything. So a very common sight if you visit my school is to see children who are answering questions, who are active for copying keywords but as soon as you ask them to read a text they read it happily but if you tell them to paraphrase or rephrase or um, summarize the text they've just read they will not start writing they won't so half of them won't even take the pencil they're very passive they usually wait till we provide a generic answer and then they happily write it in green pen. So they're very apathetic and they're not used to writing. Whether it's because of low confidence or because of lack of skills is one of the options I was trying to um, analyze. I looked at data. We don't really differentiate differentiate between a lack of skills and also um, lack of motivation. So it's hard to tell, but I think it's 50-50. So I started thinking about devising a solution, which is the third step on the seven steps of decision making. And I thought we need to have a whole school approach to writing. And I know one of the English teacher had tried to do something called Strategy 20. But I think we need to really offer resources for teachers because showing them um, a strategy during a CPD 
is one good thing, but actually devising easy to use tools is the most important aspect when we want a whole school approach change. So my summer holiday homework is to devise that writing strategy. So before that, I went and analyzed different options. So I went to talk to the English department because they're specialists of writing and literacy. I gathered input from them. I gathered old resources they had. Uh, they had made a poster with flower petals and each petal was um, an angle to work on writing strategies. I am also going to interview the um, person who is in charge of the LRC, which is the school library. And after gathering all this data, I'm going to try formulating um, a project. So this project will be developed over the summer holidays because time is a constraint and I can't do that while I'm teaching in term times. Now for the budget, because any project needs to have a budget, um, we don't have one. <laughs> and this is the reality of school in the UK is we never have any budget to do uh, things that are outside the norm, outside of our operational strategies. So hopefully I'm just going to use my printing machine and um, the excess I have to make posters. I'm going to provide a poster for each department or each classroom with um, the writing strategy approach using an acronym and a visual. And then I will also prepare Google Slides with very simple step-by-step -step activities that any teacher can trial. It will work for science, for history, for French, for maths. It will work for most subjects. And if we um, follow through as a school, it will be we will be able to train the children so that we do not have these classrooms full of children half of them are not even holding the pen, but when they have to write on their own are just passive and apathetic. So this, the aim of this project is to get rid of that apathy and to also start with very little steps. So um, one of the Google slides I will provide will be just, uh, uh, you have uh, 50 seconds to write five words, any words. And then it will be, you have uh, 40 seconds to write five words on this topic to kind of slowly increase the, um, the involvement of the students, but starting with something that most students can do. And we will not worry about the spelling at that stage because we do have lots of students who have dyspraxia, dyscalculia, and also dysgraphia, and they cannot spell. So starting small, little steps, activities that can be used by any teacher, everything in one slide, because I want the teachers to find it easily. And this would be something that they can embed in their lesson planning. They can do five minutes of it at each lesson, just in order to increase the amount of writing that children can achieve. The ultimate goal is for every child at the end of year seven to be able to read um, a small text or watch a short video and then paraphrase the content. So I will also provide a poster or a slide that has the WH words they need to answer systematically. So what, who, where, when, how, and why. 
because these are simple and yet many children don't seem to have any strategy or any guideline when they have to explain something. So by using the WH um, question words, I'm hoping they will be able to ask themselves this question, what is it about? And then in one sentence, this document deals with such and such topic. Who is it about? Uh, this document deals with um, Michelle Obama or uh, J.K. Rowling or Henry VIII or anyone. Um, and then where? This is about um, North African countries. Just a way, a strategy that the children can use themselves. And after giving that, these Google Slides and printing posters that hopefully every teacher can relate to when they are teaching this content, I'm hoping that this whole school approach will help the children build their confidence and increase their motivation and reduce that passivity regarding the writing skill. So my ultimate goal is to have students in year 11 who can write enough word count to fit the GCSE requirements. Because what the English department informed me is that too many students can write very well, but they don't write enough. They would write only one page, whereas they expected to write two at the least. So starting from year seven, offering a whole school approach strategy, and then building up resilience, motivation, and a love of writing, hopefully. So that's my decision-making process that I have devised. Uh, why have I done this? Because I like to find solutions to problems. This is how I think. And I found that there was a big problem that had a detrimental uh, influence on my lessons, whether it's in French or history or geography. So I will collect data in the summer, I will ask teachers with a survey and, and students with a survey if they feel like they know how to write a text or a paragraph and if they feel like it's easier after a whole year school approach on writing. So is it going to work? Well, I'll have to do data analysis at the end. I'm hoping I'll do my best. I just wanted to give you an example of what decision-making can look like in a school. This is minor as far as budget and uh, in, you know, time it's, uh, it implies, but it might have a major impact if children are mo more motivated. So in my view, that will be a win-win. Now watch this space if you want to know how my writing strategy um, develops. If you have any questions, you can contact me on Twitter at ProfProfMFL. I'm going to take some time out during the holidays because I need it. I need it to um, just to have some fun because teachers need to have fun as well. And also because then I will be able to do all the things I can't do in term times. Now, I wish you a lovely summer, whether you are in a rainy UK or in a very hot European country. I will be back on Sunday, the 3rd of September with some new topics concerning education. If you want me to dive into one particular topic, just send me um, a tweet and I will 
follow through. Thank you very much, dear listeners. It's been my pleasure and I wish you the best summer ever. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.